Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we have a very large section today that we're going to go through. I'm still even debating right now whether I want to read it all or not. Um, But I want to start out by giving us a quick review, a very quick review of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Um, That was my last sermon. Uh, Since then, Grayson preached, and then I also preached last week up at uh, the new church, The Vine. Uh, Matt Miller is the pastor there, and, and it became its own separate church, and they asked me to preach, and John and I to lay hands on their new elders, and so that's what we did last week. In Acts chapter 5, though, we saw that judgment begins with the church. We saw the, the wonderful growth that was occurring in the church um, the, the brand new church, by this time, ten, well over 10,000 people were now part of the church in Jerusalem. It was exciting, but sin was also in the church. And God chose to deal with a, a very serious manner in a very serious way. But he also chose to deal with this in, in, in the reality of, or the way that he chose to deal with Ananias and Sapphira was also very unique. As I said in my sermon, don't think that they were the only ones doing sin. Don't think that they were the only ones who were hiding their sin. They were the ones God ordained and chose to bring a lesson to the whole church. And so he deals with these two, and ultimately they were greedy, they were lying, and as a result of all of that, they were struck dead right there in the middle of a church service. Now, the purpose and result was found in verse 11 of chapter 5, where it says, The great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That was the purpose of it. It was to bring about the fear of the Lord among God's people. But why? Well, the reason why is because God was preparing the church to suffer. And so my simple point was this, and it still stands to this day, You and I will never learn to be a missionary people. We will never learn to go and put our faith on the line in a public manner as we're called to until we fear God more than we fear men. As long as we fear the opinions of others, as long as we play the games, we will not take the things that God commands us seriously. And so what God is doing here in the story of Ananias and Sapphira with all of those Christians who are gathered and they're excited and they're watching all of the many things take place is he's sobering them up. He is letting them know that whatever it is that they thought they were in for, it's much bigger and much more serious. Well, now, as we move into a very large passage we come to something that functions as one whole unit. I see yet another typo. I'm still not fully uh, recovered, and, and so I apologize for any of the typos that you will find. I will let you know that if, you're, if you just opened up the notes, I uh, updated them at the last moment this morning, and Kendall re-uploaded them. Some of you will see some typos, hopefully, that I've since corrected. What we have in this passage in Acts chapter 5 from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter is something that's very important. I'm going to read for you it, and and then from there we will break it down. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 5, hear now the word of the Lord. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. 
And all the more uh, believers in the Lord, multitudes of women and men were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, And taking them out, he said, go your way, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. But upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. But when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, all the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to come or not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey them. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a son, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claimed to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, and he was slain. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. And he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. May the Lord bless his reading. Now we have in this section three scenes. I went back and forth on whether or not to preach it all together or not, and I ultimately decided that it really is a single section, and and we can get lost in so many of the details and then end up missing the point of the passage, and so we're going to deal with the whole passage in one fell swoop today. 
The question you should always ask, and I've mentioned this in the past, is why these stories? When you're reading the book of Acts, you have the history of the early church and the outpouring of the Spirit and the, and the proclamation and spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ outward from Jerusalem. And Luke, who is the writer of it, had to choose what he would put down. Think of all the different stories that he was collecting as a historian, and he had to decide which ones will I put down and which ones will I not. Remember that the papyrus that he would have used was rare, It was expensive. It's not like today where we have just untold amount of paper at our hands that we can deal with it. We we throw our paper away uh, without a thought. We have so many scratch notes. It's ridiculous. That would be beyond anyone's comprehension in the days of the book of Acts. Nobody could envision back then that the amount of paper that we just have would exist. And so when they decide to write something, they decide carefully what they're going to write because space and the the materials is very expensive and difficult to come by. So why did they choose this? Well, the answer is actually rather simple but also very important because what Luke is doing, and you need to hear this, and it will help make sense of the whole text, is he is showing the final breakout, if you will, of the church from under the shadow of Judaism. Now, this can get missed because we have miracles here and casting out of demons and arrests and beatings and angelic uh, rescues. So all of those are going on too, and you can get caught up with that. And then we have the famous statement, we must obey God rather than men. And so that one gets people going too, and especially in the current situation of our own nation. And so we all of a sudden get lost on the purpose. But what's actually happening here is that God is taking the church and breaking them out from under the shadow of Judaism. Now remember that the church in relationship to Israel is different than many times we think it is. It's important to keep the church and Israel separate, at least within the biblical storyline. The Bible keeps them separate. This is why I did an entire sermon on when did the church begin. And some of you may still wonder why would we even spend time talking about that. But it's actually far more important than you many, many people actually realize. We also did a Faith and Fable podcast on the same subject. And you would be certainly encouraged to go back and listen to that if you're unsure on this subject. What you will find, though, very common in the church and in, among writers and theologians is that people conflate Israel and the church. They tend to put them together. And what happens as a result is it leads to several problems. In one way or another, usually what ends up happening is that the church now replaces the nation of Israel. And so the true Israel is not Israel the nation, but the church. This is where I had... um, a major typo. It should be rendered, it is not the true Israel, or nor is it simply the new Israel. And yet you'll find people over and over again in their writings refer to the church as Israel. Many of our hymns that we sing at Christmas time are ones that would do the same thing. But what happens is when you do that, though it might be done innocently or it's just because that's what you were taught, it ends up radically changing the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is read and understood. And so many of the promises in the Old Testament that God has given to Israel go away because no longer do those promises apply to the nation of Israel, but now they are spiritually, allegorically oftentimes, applied to the church because the church, in some people's mind, has become the true Israel. And so now you have to do something with all of those verses. And this is one of the reasons I assigned Grayson early on. I wanted him to go through the minor prophets with us. I wanted you and I to become very acquainted with what it actually is saying. This is important. Is God abandoning Israel? No. 
Is the church replacing Israel? And the answer is no. What happens, though, is that when you do that, you end up looking at the way the nation of Israel was to live in the Old Testament, and somehow now you have to make that part of the church. And so now we end up taking passages that talk about not mixing two different types of fabric, right? What do we do with that? Well, does that apply to us or not? Well, if we are the true Israel, it applies to us. So what do we do? Well, most of the time theologians will spiritualize it. Well, it's not actually saying, it doesn't mean the, uh, mixing two fabrics together. It just means that we don't want to allow ourselves to be mixed up with the things of this world. The problem is that's not what the passage actually says. And so we radically begin to change the meaning of the Old Testament. But understand that never in the New Testament, never do you find the church being referred to as Israel. Never. But that doesn't keep us from doing it nonetheless. But this then makes it a challenge on how you read the Gospels. Let me see, as I talk about this, I want you to ask yourself, maybe this might be true of you as a Christian. How often do you read the Gospels with the idea that the whole of the Old Testament was in force? Do you read the stories of the, old, of the Gospels with the idea that they are a continuation of the Old Testament? Because they are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are still all part of the Old Testament, even though they're in the New Testament. Do you understand and do you acknowledge in your reading that as you're reading that Jesus for his entire lifespan, was under the Old Testament rules and laws. That he lived that way. Everyone there lived that way. There was none of them that were exempt from that. They would have been cast out or even potentially killed. You understand that during the, all of the Gospels and the stories that the writers put down, that the temple was still working completely as it ought to work, that the sacrifices that the Old Testament, that remember when you're reading through your Bible and you read Leviticus, and you're like, oh, I hate Leviticus, it's so boring. Do you understand that everything that was happening in Leviticus is happening in Matthew? And it was supposed to. It had to. Do you understand that Jesus was obeying everything that was happening in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus, all of that? It wasn't like somehow they were now in this break, this in-between zone. It's still that continuation of the nation of Israel under the law of Moses. So when you look at the disciples, how often do you realize that they were going to the temple to make sacrifice? Just because the writers don't write about it doesn't mean it wasn't part of the reality of their life. These men, you read about them going and preaching about the kingdom of God is at, uh, at hand. You're, you're, you're hearing them um, talk about, or maybe they're casting out a demon uh, with Jesus, or maybe they're with Jesus as he's preaching to the 5,000 and then feeding them and stuff like that. And that's what you're thinking about. But in between all of that, they also would go to the temple. Jesus would go to the temple. He had to. He had to obey the law, and he did so perfectly. And yet, oftentimes, we don't think that way. Understand that for the life of any Jew, it was always in the shadow of the temple and Judaism. That's why when you're reading the Gospels, you come across stories like uh, Jesus praising the widow, right? The widow who gave all that she had, and she did deposit it into the treasury at the temple. And he says that she did that. Why? Well, she did it out of faith and out of worship and out of a heart of obedience. She didn't do it like uh, many of the religious leaders to be seen by man and say, wow, look at those guys. She gave out of her poverty, but she gave because she was obedient. She was a faithful Jew. Do you remember maybe where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees? And he said, you know what? 
You're so busy tithing your mint and dill and cumin. Remember that story? And what they would do is they would literally take their dill seeds and their cumin seeds and their mint seeds. We're talking little seeds, and they'd separate them out. Nine for us and one for God. We're going to tithe. And they would faithfully do it. And we look at that and we're like, yeah, yeah, see, that was their problem. They were legalists. They were legalists. See, they're so worried about their, their seeds. Now listen to what the, the Bible actually says. He rebukes them for doing that, not because they were doing it, but because they were neglecting the weightier provisions of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But this is what he says. He's, he says to them, these, things, these are the things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you should have done, but notice, then he says, without neglecting the others. They were supposed to count out their seeds. Everybody did. Jesus did. Everybody was under the law. But I bet you tend to one that most of the time when you're reading your Gospels, that's not how you read them. It wasn't stop doing that and start doing justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's keep doing that, but that's not the purpose. There's bigger things here that you're not doing as Pharisees. Now, with all of that in mind, realize that the book of Acts functions as a transitional book, something I've repeated over and over again. If you don't keep that in your mind, stories will not make sense. This is the transition where Jesus ascends back into heaven. The church is born, and part of the, the process of that is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon those people in Acts chapter 2, which is where the church is born. From there, we see it moving outward from Jerusalem and into the rest of the world, and that's what the book of Acts is about. So up to now, the church is in Jerusalem. That's where everybody's at. That's where the whole church is meeting. But Jesus told the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. So he's like, you're going to start here in Jerusalem and then move outward. Right now, everything's fine right here in Jerusalem. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. Exciting events are taking place. People are getting healed. Why go outward into the rest of the world? Why? Why would we? Listen, how many of you know that you're called to be witnesses, and yet you won't? The thinking is same and alive and well here in our church and in the church, the bigger church of America, the forgetting of the fact that we are called to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. But our lives are comfortable. They're, they're easy. They're safe. Why, why do we need to create problems for ourselves? We, you have to understand, you have to be wise and careful. And that's what's actually happening right here. And so in very quick fashion, God brings about some events that essentially hurl the church outward. It forces them to obey, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So we're going to take this into three sections. The first is, and all of it, we're going to be seeing how the church fully emerges out from under Judaism. The first is in verses 12 through 16. Now again, this is in the book of Acts, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible probably right in front of you underneath your seat. Um, and you can look up in the, book of, uh, in the front, in the table of contents for the book of Acts, and then find chapter 5. And we're starting in verse 12. The first section here deals with the apostolic work of miraculous mercy. That's what I'm calling it. The apostles are, are continuing to center their work at the temple grounds. Now, the Solomon's porch, if you, if you have a picture, you might have in the back of your Bible a picture of the temple or something like that. That might help you understand. You can look it up. 
Um, I had actually a slide I was going to put up on the screen and then totally forgot about. But picture the temple grounds as a big, massive rectangle, and there's a wall all the way around it. You know about the Wailing Wall uh, in Jerusalem. Well, that's part of the outer wall. And, and inside this rectangle is the temple grounds, and all the way around it is this thing called Solomon's Porch. And it was just a big, massive, covered porch that goes all the way around the interior of it. When you walked into the temple grounds, you would be in the court of the Gentiles. Anyone who was not a Jew but wanted to come and worship, that was where they could come, only there. And the Solomon's porch was part of it. It was a place where they would conduct meetings and business. This is where the money changers would have been that Christ cast out of the temple, remember? Uh, and, and this is where the Gentiles could come. And then there would be this low wall. It was only maybe three feet high or so. And it would go around the, the middle section of the temple. That was the wall that no Gentile could go past. In fact, there were signs up, and it said, no Gentiles pass this point or you will die. They were very serious about this. And so only a Jew could enter the inner part. It was, again, the Gentiles could look over it. It was very easy to see, but they couldn't go past it. From there, you would enter into the inner part, and then you would, there would be, again, another wall surrounding the central part of the temple grounds where the sacrifices and everything else took place. And inside there was what was called the court of the women. So Jewish women could go in there, but they couldn't go any further. Only the men could go beyond that to where the sacrifices were done and the priests were waiting. And then inside there was one more structure, and that was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. So all the way around this this, uh, temple is Solomon's porch, and that's where they're at. It's important to note that the work of the miracles and the casting out of the demons uh, that it was the apostles doing that. Just look at that for, your, for yourself, and you can see this was not what everybody was doing. This was what the apostles were doing. It was not part of an average believer's experience, and there was no reason to think that it is still to this day that the average person should be able to cast out any old demon or do some kind of a miracle. But people were literally coming from all over to receive relief. And for good reason. One of the things that's happened in our society in America is that COVID has really revealed how much people fear death. Here in America, it, 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 it's paralyzing for some. But it also has revealed how death is something that you and I are not well acquainted with like we like to think we are. For us, the idea that death is possible shocks us, scares us. So when we hear of something happening, we're, like, we're actually surprised. Why? Because death is not part of our life as much as we like to think it is. I say this not to be harsh or rough. I'm just saying it's a reality. Understand that in this setting, in Acts chapter 5, the average lifespan would have been 40 to 50. Just get that through you. You're 40, you're on your way out quickly. That's the average. Anyone beyond that was very unique and often held in high esteem as an elder. The infant mortality rates would have been around 25%. One out of four children born died. There are some households that never saw any of their children make it past one. All of their children died. It was just part of the way it was. In fact, if you made it past your 20s, you were unique. You may wonder, how is it that guys like Alexander the Great could accomplish so much in such a short time? He was 26 when he conquered essentially the known world. 26. There's 26-year-olds who still are trying to improve their kill-death ratio with Call of Duty in America. He's, meanwhile, conquering the whole of 
known world. Why? What's the difference? Well, 26 over half your life is gone. You didn't play around. If you were had, had the opportunity to do something, you did it because there was no expectation that tomorrow was yours. In other words, guys, death was a daily part of your life if you lived in those days. Everyone knew somebody who had just died. Everyone. It was just part of what it was. And so you can imagine in verse 13, the stir that they created in this, this reality that, that they were healing. In verses 13 down, on down to verse 16. You see how some even thought that Peter's shadow might be able to heal. People were desperate. They were bringing their children, their loved ones, young and old alike, people who are oppressed by demons, all of the horrors of what it is in the real world. They were bringing them because they were finding relief. But I want you to understand that, that at no point is the miracles that they were performing their purpose. It was never the purpose to perform miracles. That was a side activity that was designed to affirm that they were, in fact, people in the na- coming in the name and power of Jesus Christ. They did all of this in the name of Jesus. It was to affirm that they were truly apostles or sent ones by Jesus. Understand that the primary task of the apostles was always, always for them to function as witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their central ministry, in other words, was always word-based, not miracle-based, and that continues still to this day. In fact, I can tell you this, that any church that is built around something other than the centrality of the preaching and teaching of God's Word is suspect. And yet, if you look at many of the churches in America today, they are anything but word-based, centered around the Word of God. Notice in verses 11 to 13, though, that there is also this fear and trepidation that was present. Verses 12, or 11 through 13 are, are very, are 12, I'm sorry, 12 and 13 are, are very awkward if you actually read them carefully. Who's in view here? We notice in verse 12, it says apostles. It also says the people. And it also says they were all. Who are these? Well, we know who the apostles are. But who are the people? Who are the they were all? Then in verse 13, we have none of the rest and them and the people, and then another, again, they have them, all in verse 13. Who are these? And so if you start circling them, you can start to connect lines so that you can kind of get a sense of what's happening. The apostles, in verse 12, are connected with um, they were all and them twice in verse 13. So the apostles are mentioned four times. The people in verse 12 connects again in verse 13 to the people in verse 13. And then that other phrase, none of the rest, is one of two options. It's either the, the church, the Christians, or it's just Jews who didn't care. Unbelieving Jews who were coming there, but they didn't care with what was happening. I think it was the church. I think that what's happened is that because Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God in the middle of a service because of sin and because the apostles John and uh, Peter had been arrested and ordered to no longer speak, that many in the church pulled back and were not wanting to be part of that public outworking. I'm not saying they, they, they denied Jesus or abandoned the Christian faith or anything. I'm just saying that they did not want to be seen out there. Perhaps they were thinking, why are we creating unnecessary trouble and risk against the Jewish leadership? But what you need to understand is though the church had pulled back, the average member, believer, the apostles said, 
yeah, no, we're, we're still there. That was where we're called to be, and that's where we're going to be. And so the, every day, the apostles would show up, enter the temple grounds, go into the porch of Solomon, and they would begin to preach. And as they did, people were bringing sick people and demonic people, and they were resolving every one of them. Why? Because they had a job to proclaim that Jesus really was the Messiah of Israel. And so the general populace would continue to come to the temple and they would see these miracles and many of them were believing and being added to the church. And so the gospel continues to do its work and there's all sorts of excitement and joy happening because the apostles are doing what no one else can do. And your baby, who you think is not going to make it past that day, is now saved. And your demonic sister, who is, is just in terrible situation, is now free. And everybody's talking about everybody to the point that it's spreading beyond Jerusalem to the outskirts. In other words, what you have is Jesus' earthly ministry all over again. But now it's being done by 12 men and not one. Now from there we see the reaction of the so-called shepherds in verses 26 to, I mean 17 to 26. So you can let your eyes cast down and you can follow as I take you through here quickly. We see the persecution of the church move up now to a new level. The apostles and the church have grown and they're still growing and that is not acceptable to the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin, they're also known as the Council. This was the Senate, or the Supreme Court of Israel. And it would consist of the high priest, and then 70 other men, made up primarily of Sadducees. They were the, the uh, majority. And then the Pharisees, two groups, two sects, S-E. CTS. The Sadducees were in the majority. They were all Levitical priests. They were all priests. And the Pharisees were lay leaders. They were not priests, but they were leaders among the people. The high priest was always a Sadducee. But notice in verse 17 that Luke calls it the sect of the Sadducees. If you had the English Standard Version or another one, it might say the party or the religious party. Think Democrat, Republican, whatever you want. Lutheran, Presbyterian. It's a sect. Understand that Judaism was a big umbrella. And it was made up of many smaller groups or sects. You had the Sadducees. They were the Orthodox. You had the Pharisees. They were the Liberals. You had the Essenes, they were the mystics, and you could even add to that the zealots. The zealots were the nationalists. Sounds a lot like America. <laughs> so you had, and under the umbrella of Judaism, you had the Orthodox, the liberal, you had the mystics, and you had the nationalists. And they all had their place in Judaism, and is very similar to the denominations in the Protestant church. Or if you're familiar with like how the Catholic Church functions, you have the Roman Catholic Church, and then you have the Carmelites and the Jesuits, right? These are all subsets, they're sects within the bigger umbrella. Well, the church, what's happening is the church is exploding in Jerusalem. Now we have tens of thousands of people in it, and it's beginning to become its own sect under in Judaism. So now they're starting to think, well, we have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and now we have this thing called the church. The problem is the church isn't part of Judaism, and so God's going to break it out. But the apostles at this point were not breaking out from under Judaism because they didn't see themselves as rebels. They didn't see themselves as an alternative or an alternate. Because what they were doing was they were still preaching Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised to Israel, and that if the nation would repent, God would save the nation. 
And what God is going to do is break the church out from the womb, if you will, of Judaism, move it out onto its own. And, and how he's going to do it is by using the religious leaders. So in verse 17, they're filled with jealousy. Why? Well, it's interesting. We know that the church in Acts 2 was filled with the Spirit. We know that Ananias and Sapphira were filled with greed. And we now know that the, Jew, the Jewish leaders were filled with this jealousy. And why? Because it all had to do with honor. Something in our culture we don't understand, but some of you here come from an honor-shame society, and you understand it better. Honor is a commodity, and there's only so much honor to go around. And you're born into a certain status, a certain caste, a certain type of people. And your honor comes from your parentage. And so you're accorded a certain amount of honor within the society. And it was, it's all done instinctively in the, these societies. You have to travel and get close in honor-shame societies before you just see it. Uh, Africa is filled with this. And, and um, yeah, it is what it is. So you're born into this certain status. If you belong to a caste society, the higher the class you belong, the more honor is yours. And you can only go so high in your honor if you're in a low caste. In Israel's case, if you were a Sanhed- part of the Sanhedrin, you had honor. You had a measure of respect and, and honor People deferred to you and looked upon you with great honor and respect simply because of who you were. An uneducated fisherman, a former tax gatherer, had no honor. The problem is the uneducated fisherman and the tax gatherers are out there healing people right and left in the name of Jesus, and everyone's coming to them and they're ignoring the Sanhedrin and all of their honor. And so they're jealous. The crowds don't care about them. They're probably even pushing past some of the Sanhedrin on their way to get their baby healed. And you can imagine what that would do to a a man filled with his own pride. The council is made up of the shepherds of Israel, but they're, they're the false shepherds. They're the ones that the Old Testament warned about, rebukes all the way through. In Jeremiah 23.1, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. In Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own lies, in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Or in Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flock. You eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. These are the men who only love themselves and their honor, and these are the Sanhedrin. They had no time for Jesus. So when Jesus was on the scene, alive and walking and doing his miracles and calling out for the nation to repent and come and follow him, they had no time for that because if they were going to repent, it meant they had to give up all of their honor, all of their status, all of their comfort, and they were not going to do that. And now the apostles are on the scene saying the exact same thing, repent, Come, confess your sin, follow Jesus, and they're like, we will not. We will not because it will cost us everything. They didn't care for the poor. They didn't care for all these people who were having their children and their loved ones dying and suffering with the demons. They had no power over them. All they cared about was their status and their honor 
and how they looked. And these poor, uneducated, tax, former tax gatherer men are out there in the temple grounds doing what they cannot do. So in verse 18, the apostles are arrested. They went for the leaders so that they can silence them. But they're taken to a public jail, and Luke makes that point. Why? Well, it's an intimidation factor. He wants, the, the Sanhedrin wants everyone to know who's in charge here. The people now know who's boss. They know that whatever's happening, the, 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 the leaders of Israel are saying this is wrong. And so there's a public humiliation. But in verses 19 to 26, we have this angel that rescues them, right? And this is where it becomes a bit ironic, because in a very casual way, notice how it's written, in a casual way, we learn of an angel coming, releasing them, and tells them, go back and preach in the temple concerning this life, meaning Christ. Think about how different this is to what if you, the false teachers of today who are all about talking about the miracles they're experiencing and seeing and this and that. It's all about the miracle and never the word. Here we have an angel coming and rescuing all of the apostles. You'd think that would be like a big deal. And th- that's not what's the issue. All the angel wants them to do is say, okay, I'm letting you out. You go back and preach the word. Just keep preaching. And it shows again in verses 21 to 25 how, how helpless the religious leaders are because the apostles are right back the next day at 6 in the morning when the temple opens and they're preaching. Meanwhile, on the other end of the temple ground, which is where the Sanhedrin would gather, they're all solemnly marching in to continue the day's business. You can imagine, if you can, all of their finery and, and all of their assistance and all of the silliness that goes on with the pomp and circumstance, they're walking in because they still have serious business of God to deal with. On the other end, the apostles are still doing what they're doing. They're preaching. The problem is, the Sanhedrin then says, go and bring the men to us. And no one can find them. Picture the poor guards at the public jail. They're just standing there doing their job. And can you imagine the, the people come and they say, hey, we need the apostles. And they're like, okay, unlock the door and nobody's there. And they're like, where'd they go? I don't know. We've been here all night. And there's no evidence of wrongdoing. Notice in verse 24, because it's very enlightening. So the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, and they're greatly perplexed, perplexed about them as to what would come of this. It's very enlightening because the Sanhedrin now are like, well, what's going to happen? It's really all about their reputation. How these guys get out? What, what are we going to say? In other words, what they're trying to do is they're trying to manage the message, just like today in our politics. This is very embarrassing. Everybody knows these guys got arrested because they did it in a public manner. And now they can't find them. How do you lose 12 men? I'm fighting many temptations to make Epstein jokes right now. Just so you know. I didn't say I'm a good man. I'm just saying... In verse 26, the captain of the guard himself goes, they went to the apostles, and now he needs to bring them back. Captain of guard is way high up in the ranking. Be like the head of the FBI. You know, it's not just a guy. And he talks to them, and he deals with them very carefully and respectfully because the people are going to stone them if they grab them. Normally, they would grab you, beat you a little bit, knock you around, and, and make you a little bit more compliant. They're not going to do any of that. And now we finally come to the last section in verses 27 to 47, the split, that split between Judaism and the church. Now they're all formally charged that they had violated the high priest order. Notice that the charges given to them 
is we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, the name of Jesus. And look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Beloved, may I ask you, the charges that they're continued, the charges that they're being given are that they are continuing to preach Christ. My prayer for Missio would be that if we're ever going to take any charges against us, let it be because of Jesus. That the only thing is that they all can say is, these guys won't shut up about this Jesus. Not something else that we're known for, but let us be troublemakers because we love Jesus and we tell people Jesus is the way of life. They're also accused of trying to make the Sanhedrin guilty of Jesus' death. That's what it means by his blood. You're trying to put his blood on our hands, and they're like, yes, we are. But what's interesting and somewhat humorous in this whole thing is what's one thing they don't bring up with the apostles? How would you get out of jail? They avoid that completely. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to even discuss it. We'll just pretend... You didn't end up out in the temple grounds free somehow. Not one question. And so Peter then gives a response in verses 29 and following, and he, it's simply a restatement of their whole message. He says, we have to obey God rather than men. That's how he starts out. And then he talks about the fact that Uh, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Understand this phrase, we must obey God rather than men, is not a carte blanche statement. It's not the passage you take when you decide that you're going to argue that you're not going to obey the government in some way. And I'm not going to go deep into this because I don't need to. Understand the context of this statement is we have been commanded by God to do something. Preach the gospel. You're commanding us to stop talking about the gospel and Jesus. We have to obey God, not man. This is not for you. Anytime you don't like a law or something else that you just decide, I'm going to obey God, not man. You better make sure that you have a clear command from the scripture. Clear command telling you that you're forbidden to do something or you must do something that God is commanding you, and then you have full rights to stand on that. For them, the apostles are saying Jesus is still the Messiah, the promised one. He was raised up for Israel by God. You put him on the cross. God raised him from the dead. And he's exalted him now as a prince or leader, depending on your translation, and a savior. For what purpose? To bring repentance and forgiveness of sin to Israel. Notice verse 31, because it brings everything to a head. Did I say 31? I meant 32. And we, the apostles, are witnesses of these things. He said, they're saying, we saw it. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead. And so is the Holy Spirit, he's a witness, whom God has given to those who obey him. What is he saying? What are they saying? They're saying this, Sanhedrin, you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit himself is a witness that he rose from the dead, but he's been only given to those who obey him. That means, Sanhedrin, that you don't what? Obey the Holy Spirit. That's what they're saying. We have the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit himself is a witness that God raised Jesus from the dead. You deny that. That means you don't obey God. But we must obey God. And it just cuts them. They can't handle that. The Sanhedrin are furious. And so in verses 33 to 34, we see that anger. They're cut to the quick. They want to kill them, and they would have. They wanted death, and that's where this guy Gamaliel steps into the story. 
Now, very impressive man in history. Not a lot known, but what we do know about him is impressive. Very, very influential man. He was a Pharisee, which means he was on the minority of this council. If you didn't know, Paul was his disciple at this time. He would have been under the teaching and leading of Gamaliel. But he's also respected by everyone there, so much so that he can stop everyone's emotion and actually say, let's empty the room. So the apostles are taken out. Everyone's emptied but the Sanhedrin. And he's there, and he's going to talk. And he gives a defense in verses 35 to 39. And it's very ironic because it's a Pharisee who's defending them. If you think about it, in Luke, who wrote Acts, in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees are the problem. Here, the Pharisee is a helper. Why are the Pharisees in Luke so bad? And here we see something slightly different. Well, the reason is that, remember, the Pharisees are the lay leaders. They're not the professionals. And so where Jesus functioned was always on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He was always out in the countryside where the Pharisees were in power. That's why they were always in focus in the book of Luke. Now we're in Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin is and the Sadducees are the ones in power, not the Pharisees. So now the Sadducees are the bad guys. So he gives a word of caution, basically. He says, slow down, guys. Let's just slow down. And he gives a brief history lesson about a couple of other religious movements. We don't know anything about Thutis. You may have a study Bible that talks about it, but very doubtful that the one that, uh, if your study Bible talks about it, is the one in view. Because this Thutis that we have in our history books happened after these events. We don't know anything about them. All we know is that he was a rebel and he raised up a bunch of people but ultimately failed. Judas was probably one of those zealots I talked about. He would have been a fanatic who took up the position that God was king of Israel and therefore, now listen to how American Christians today talk the same way. He would have said, God is the king of Israel To him alone, tribute is due, and any other taxation was impious or ungodly, ungodly, and to pay it was blasphemy. You got Christians today saying the same thing, right? We follow God, not man. Well, he got killed, (laughs) and his movement stopped very quickly. What's the point? Well, his point is this. Look, these men rose up to prominence, They all died, and when they died as the leader, the movement died away too. Well, Jesus is dead. He's the leader of this movement. Remember, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. So what he's telling the Sadducees who are in the majority, because there's going to be a vote, he is saying to them, look, Jesus is dead. And every Sadducee there is saying, and he's still dead. He's like, the movement will die because the leader is gone. And so he says, just leave him alone. And then he adds another thing that's very interesting. He says, if God is moving in this thing, there is nothing you can do to stop it. And if God's not moving in it, it will fizzle out. And whether he knew it or not, he was essentially making a prophecy. 2,000 years of history tells us one thing. It has not fizzled out. Not at all. Starting here in the early part of Acts in the city of Jerusalem, this thing called the church grew And then burst out of Jerusalem, and it is still spreading throughout the earth. All the way to nations right now, like Afghanistan, where the church is growing. And in North Korea. And that message, the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ, has been watered by the blood 
of countless men and women who said we must obey God rather than men. Through the many heresies and false teachers over the last 2,000 years, the truth of the gospel still gets preached, it still gets read, it still gets heard, and it still gets believed. Even though the church is sorely pressed on every side throughout this world, it continues to this day. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He's the head. He died and he what? He rose again. And as the head, that is the source of life. The church cannot die because the head of the church is alive forevermore. That's why the resurrection means everything. The church is vitally and eternally connected to his life-giving presence. He is, as Peter says in our passage, our prince and our savior. Therefore, what can man do to us? And so in verses 40 to 42, he sums it all up now. The council takes the advice of Gamaliel, but they still got to assert their authority, so they have the men beaten. What this would have been is the law allows them to beat these men 39 times with a whip. So each one of the 12 were taken, and a professional whipper would beat them 39 times each. Why? Because they didn't obey the command not to preach about Jesus. But notice, and, and, and I want you to walk away with this, so notice this, the, the apostles react very unique. They rejoice. They rejoice for the privilege of suffering for the name of Jesus. That's whack. That makes no sense to you and I. Why do they rejoice? Now listen and don't miss it. Jesus had predicted that people would hate and persecute his disciples. And he told them in passages like Matthew 5 and others to rejoice when they're hated by others. He commands them, rejoice. Hear that again. He commands you, rejoice. Peter later would write that the Christians should count it a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. It's commanded, rejoice. So what do you have with these these apostles? You know what they're still doing? They're still saying, we must obey God rather than men. Because every one of us would be telling each other, rebel, resist, become bitter, become frustrated, become afraid, become everything and anything. But likely, the one thing you would not hear is, cool. What a privilege. High five. Hugs. You got beaten? Dude, you are so lucky. It makes no sense to the American Christian, and you wonder why the American church is so screwed up. We won't obey. We won't obey and be his witnesses. We won't suffer for his namesake. We won't anything. These dumb, unwashed, uneducated apostles are stupid enough to actually think the commands of their Lord mean something. The beating would have been hard and painful. And they're given that choice. Be filled with dread, soften the message, change it, or obey their Lord. The scripture gives us so many commands. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, command, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. How many times do we have those passages and we make them say something other than simply, the Lord is so commanded, I will obey. 
and will not stop until I see that obedience. And so with great rejoicing, these men continued with their message, Jesus is the Messiah, he who died rose again, therefore repent, believe, and be saved. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He describes those faith-filled men and women in, in the Old Testament who were foolish enough to believe God, and he says that others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. And then in parentheses, he adds, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Beloved, that day may come for you. That day may come for you. Are you ready? Are you ready to obey God rather than men? Are you ready to rejoice as you suffer? That's my question to you. But in all of that, what is going to happen in verses chapter 6 and 7 is that the persecution is going to come on really strong and this church is going to shove outward into the world and everyone in this room right now who is a Christian is saved because of that reality. Let's pray. So Father, as we prepare to go home, as we prepare to consider our ways before you, the gospel message does not make sense, Father. It's a, it's a message of shame. It's a message of weakness. And yet it's the power unto salvation, you say. And so I pray that we, all of us in this room, whether we're Christian or not, that we consider what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? That we might believe, be saved, and then obey that in that obedience, we do it with joy and faith, knowing that it's the right thing. That we are simple in our purposes. We're focused in what we do so that we might make much of you. That we must decrease, as John the Baptist said, and Christ must increase. Let this church make much of you in the coming days, months, and even years as, you tar- as long as you tarry. We ask in your son's holy name, amen.